Hello everyone, Dr. Anna Kabeka here on Couch Talk. And this is a, gosh, this is just an awesome place for really in-depth conversation where I love to bring to you experts in the field of, of medicine from all aspects as well as other integrative health specialties. Today, we're gonna to be talking about genetics. You know, do you have the right size genes? <laughs> or what, what is it that we really need to understand about genetics? And let's bring this down into common language and really into what will, how do we use genetics to enhance your overall life, longevity, and the enjoyment that you're having of it so that you're really optimally healthy as time goes on. So today coming from um, Colorado, we have the genomic medicine expert, Dr. Mary Lauder. And I first came across Dr. Mary Lauder in, um, through Integrative Practitioner, do a featured article on her and her practice, how it's evolved into, into understanding the genome and how we use that in medicine. So uh, it's great to have you here, Dr. Lauder. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to be here. And we have a beautiful day on our end. I hope it's beautiful over there. Oh my gosh, it's so gorgeous. Definitely would love to be outside. I always laugh, you know, because the ideal entrepreneur um, image is sold on, you know, on, the, on your laptop on the beach, right? Right. And that never works because the computers overheat and you can't see the computer screen. So the reality is that just never happens. <laughs> <laughs> and and the entrepreneurial lifestyle is a 24-7, just like in, in clinical medicine. So um, so let me just tell our audience a little bit about you and your beautiful background. So Dr. Mary Lauder was born and raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She graduated from the University of Montana in athletic training and education. She attended Michigan State University for master's work in sports medicine and spinal biomechanics, and that introduced her to osteopathic manipulation, and she became an osteopathic physician at MSU. Her postdoctoral training was in family medicine, and she board certified in family medicine and integrative holistic medicine. She's practiced medicine for about 25 years and served as medical director for several facilities and is currently an assistant clinical professor at MSU, College of Osteopathic Medicine. And currently, she is living and practicing in her private practice in Lafayette, Colorado. And she just has a beautiful background. And it's nice to have a fellow osteopathic physician here with me today as well. <laughs> yeah, great. Yes, we, we tend to run in, in uh, oh, we tend to run together as osteopaths, all the structural and functional folks. So, yes, it's good to, good to um, be a part of that. Yeah. So, so go into your background and, and your journey into using the genome and how you decided to, how you've evolved in that, in that area of practice and how you really combine, you know, the practice as osteopathic physician, that holistic con content into now this new genre of medicine. Yeah, that's a great question. So as osteopaths, we always look at structure and function, right? So the structure of the bones, the structure of the muscles, the structure of the biochemistry, and then how things are functioning. So I was always wired that way. That led me into looking at things more holistically. And people go, well, you're an osteopath. Aren't you supposed to be holistic? Well, yes, but sometimes just as a result of our training, we get back to that reductionistic view of things. So as I was expanding more and more out into the integrative world and truly doing holistic stuff, looking at mind-body medicine, supplements, IV therapy, you know, um, we, we saw or I saw that I had incomplete information. And I saw that I would know the science says try chromium or try, you know, vitamin E, but then we didn't get really lasting results. So we couldn't really compare the supplementation to say a pharmaceutical, but we also saw, and I kept thinking there has to be more, there has to be more we need to understand about the patient, what are we missing? And so as we dug into some of the pathways and the functional medicine, that was great, but then it also turned into, well, if we tried that with some folks, they got worse, or why could I never get their thyroid balance? What's up with that? So why am I stuck with T3, you know, and then potentially having some regulatory boards looking down on you because you're using T3, you know, different things that you just have to navigate and be really wise about. 
And so that kept telling me, if I still don't have the answer, there's something we're not seeing. And so I thought, well, we go back to the patient, we listen to them, we re-examine them, and we rethink our approach to what we're doing. Well, about 2002, 2003, there was some genomic uh, uh, information available to us through various labs, but it was very small sections. And so I saw, well, I could see a window into, say, phase one, phase two liver detoxification. I could understand how aspirin and Tylenol and caffeine affect people, but I couldn't really see what happened down the way. And then I also saw maybe they, a patient had some abnormal estrogen or they had an estrogen-related illness. And I thought there has to be a connection because phase one and estrogen go together, but, but is that enough? And so I kept having more incomplete information. So actually, I finally got frustrated and quit even thinking about it. For a number of years, I thought, I'm just, I can't figure this out. I'm kind of done. I'm just going to put it aside. So as I did that, uh, time and science marched on, thankfully. And so what I saw about 15, 10, 15 years later was a resurgence of genomics, but I saw where they were looking at a much larger picture. So they were taking upwards of two to 400 genes that they were looking at and looking at the variations in those genes. And those variations have been labeled single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, SNPs. I call them snipperdoodles, because we have a labradoodle, Lucy is a dog, so snipperdoodles fits. And so I saw, when I saw a bigger picture, I could see things that while affected in the liver and perhaps a hormone metabolism, I also saw a very significant stress response that stimulated that entire pathway. And then I saw instead of them having too much of something, they lacked something so the switch went on or a switch didn't go on. And as I looked at the bigger picture and looked at literally eight different systems within the body, bone metabolism, cardiovascular, muscular, nutrigenomics, which is applying nutrition and the right food choices, what I saw was we were literally looking at the blueprint of that individual. And I went, oh, this is what we've been missing. And my aha moment came with a patient who came in and gave me about 137, 150 pages of data and said, I have breast cancer, you need to help me. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll get right on that one. <laughs> Because I thought, I have no clue what to do with this data. And the way it was so eloquently put forward, and I saw that I could dive down into what's called the biomarker tests. The biomarker tests are looking at your homocysteine level, vitamin E levels, antioxidant levels. And then I applied that right over their genome, right over their blueprint. And that began to put their house together as it was. And I saw within that 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 person needed not just a particular type of vitamin D, but they needed to receive it in a certain way. They needed either the liquid vitamin D or shots, that the oral vitamin D was just never going to work. And I also saw that in that situation that their stress response, they have a little bit of stress they're exposed to, but it goes way off the schedule way off the trajectory and it just drives their system. And they didn't have the reserve to stop it. One of the stopping or the breaking steps or the governess on their system would have been glutathione. I measured their glutathione level. It was normal, but they had a glutathione reductase, which has to do with an enzyme to recycle the glutathione that was literally turned off. So while they had it there, they couldn't reuse and reuse and reuse. And so what that showed me was, I would have just thought to continue giving more glutathione. And I would have thought, okay, so yeah, everybody needs stress management, things like that. This particular individual needed to nearly become a Zen monk to change the stress level in their life. And that was something that 
while they were aware, they said, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. And so I saw the areas I could best support her in was to pull her out of the concrete aspect. Okay, five grains of this, 15 milligrams of that, 30 minutes of this type of exercise. And I could begin to really, really see that her pressure point for her illness was stress management. And I began to put, was able to put things in place, more support for me. How can we bring in some uh, psychological support? What areas need to change? What does your job look like? Where do you want your career to go? What are your relationships involving? And that had a bigger impact on her. I also saw through looking at her blueprint and genomics, the difference between this cancer she had as a young woman and the cancer she were pre, that she was predisposed to 20 years later. Meaning the cancer she has now was based upon a BRCA gene variation and the result of stress. These ones that were lurking over here were based upon estrogen metabolism that we know come around sometime after menopause, a lot. So she had the potential for two different types of breast cancer sitting right there, and she already had one. And I thought, I, I sat there and I said, this is, this is more than an aha moment. This is a paradigm changer. This is a practice changer. This is a change in medicine that you know, going forward, we have to have, we have to be armed with this knowledge. We have to know what we need to be doing for these folks uh, versus, well, you know, let's just hope you don't get it and good luck. And that was the, one of the biggest challenges I saw and the biggest um, wake up for me to see how valuable this information was and that I couldn't go forward any farther with complicated patients without this data. It's like, it just doesn't make sense to guess anymore. It made sense to be fully armed with as much science by understanding the structure, and that's really what the genome is, the structure of the DNA within the cell. The genetics is just DNA, a single piece of DNA. And if there's a change in that single piece of DNA, that's where you get mutations and things like that. That's the science. The art of it is how do you take that genome, that DNA, that DNA functioning within the cell, and how do you take that and change how it's functioning within the human? Because the body does have the inherent capacity to heal. We have lots of tools for healing. And how do we use those, tap those, understand those to bring those back into a better alignment for healing, health, and wholeness? And that's what I saw my, how my job switched from just applying certain things and understanding to really using the depth of the genome to balance the structure and the function of that individual. It's beautiful to see it that, you know, drawn out that way. And you've talked about in this case of this client with the BRCA gene and also the estrogen detoxification pathway um, SNPs, that stress was the key stimulating event. And is this, I want you to go into like the, the chemistry, we'll geek out a little bit here, but going into the chemistry of that. So stress, igniting cortisol, shifting other hormones, causing like turning, flipping on or off those genetic switches, right? Right. Yeah, there was. That's perfect because yes, for her stress and the research we know currently stress and the BRCA gene flips one particular aspect of the genome. And she had that SNP, that variation uh, that actually flipped on the messaging of the BRCA gene. So you can have the BRCA gene without the messaging to flip it on. So she had both the BRCA gene and the message to flip it on. And then that powerful, super strong stress response. Her cancer hit her when she was 32. Two That's young. Very so that also knowing that SNP was there, that flipper switch and the stress, what we also know is the number one treatment for her surgery, not chemo, not radiation, because you have to remove that abnormally sing signaling tissue. That is the treatment. Um, and that's what the literature says too. So we had diagnosis, reason, understanding, background, and treatment option right there. 
So when you're talking about the switch that flips on the activation of the BRCA2 gene, what SNP is that? Um, I don't know the one right off the top of my head. Um, I can follow that up with you to get that specifically. Well, just thinking that, you know, with, with people having access, and we'll talk about this, access to their 23andMe, I mean, because that was always my issue with BRCA gene testing, right? Because there's more to it than whether you're BRCA positive, BRCA gene positive or not. And that's typically... For our audience, we can talk about that a little bit. That's typically what you're measuring in genetic testing for hereditary breast cancers. So right. the breast, colon, ovarian triad, certainly, and that's the BRCA1 and 2 genes. And so you're negative. You can feel like, okay, I'm off the hook. But now we have to talk about estrogen detoxification genes and SNPs that we, right. we need to add to that picture. So the BRCA gives only a, a part of it. And then being BRCA positive isn't a death sentence, right? It means not. You need to know how do we enhance the proper functioning of these genetic pathways. So I'd love for you to kind of address that. Yeah, because so what you've got is you've got um, a little bit of confusion between genetic and genomic. So the epigenetics is where these SNPs come in. So they kind of sit above or work into the genome, which is the entire Thing that's happening within the DNA of the cell. The genetics change, the genetics is that BRCA. So that's there, that's a structural thing. The epigenetics comes in and says, okay, BRCA, I'm going to turn you on or off. That's the SNP. And we can influence that SNP based upon environment, stress, biochemical support, and what else is going on within that cell is the function. So the BRCA gene would be the structure. What's happening to it would be the function. And that's the, what we see that makes um, the difference between somebody having the gene and having it switched on or not. And, um, and I, I don't remember the exact SNP, but I will get it to you and we can post that. And I will put a little paragraph together. Um, that by itself has been studied and is very solid, has very solid evidence that it's an on and off mechanism with that. Yeah. And it's directly related to levels of cortisol. So if you have a super strong stress response, meaning you just go way into fight, flight, or freeze, that is just going to jam that system with a lot of messaging to tell the BRCA gene to, do, to, to switch on. And that's the difference between, and there wasn't, it wasn't even an estrogen because this gal's um, estrogen and progesterone receptors were negative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it has nothing to do. That's the stuff that's lurking, you know, two decades for down the road that we need to then understand what's changing in her metabolism now. So, so two decades from now, we aren't faced with another type of a cancer. Right totally unrelated to the BRCA gene. Totally unrelated. Yeah. And, and you're talking about the, the stressed trigger. And so what are some things like implementing, you talked about with her just really like having, you know, the near possibility of becoming a Zen monk in today's society, right? <laughs> it's a nice theory, but yeah. um, how do you work with, how do you work with her with that? Well, you know, and actually, sometimes theory becomes what happens to happen, meaning sometimes our lives are so out of control that people have often said that disease was a wake-up call for me. Sure. That diagnosis was the wake-up call. Okay, well, that was the brick building that fell, right, or the brick wall. But before that, you tripped a few times. There were some red flags. There were some caution signs. So it's going back without judgment, without shame without um, you know, being hard on oneself to say, okay, here were some flags that I probably missed. Safe to say. Okay, so I'm working, I'm working in that, that individual was working in the health field, um, came out of um, service within the military and in that situation, and in a similar situation with a very similar type of patient, they were in a high-powered job that had a lot of deadlines that required them to do a lot of interfacing and negotiation. 
So those were all situations that kept their stress level at much higher throughout the day. Um, they didn't, they tended to not unplug and they tended to not have a personal practice where they could really, as we say, core dump and really understand how to get the stresses released out of their system. Um, one of the things we know and are taught osteopathically is that the issues are in the tissues. The stress is there, the trauma is there. So when these traumas occur, you know, we're a multifaceted being, not just physical, but we're a spiritual being having a human experience. We're an emotional being trying to, trying to figure out what it's all about, and it may just be the hokey pokey. We don't know, right? And so when that happens, it's, it becomes whatever's true for that individual that we know are those triggers. It could, in, in, in a couple of these cases, uh, my patient said, you know what, I'm done with these types of clients. I'm dumping them. Uh, one person said, I really question the relationship I'm in. Uh, another person said, well, I love my job, but I can't handle the stress. And so I need to figure this out. And I don't know if I need to do what I'm doing anymore. So I've never seen it not be that dramatic or not feel that dramatic. And it's because it's a life-altering diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have then seen people then over time, because you've got that initial stress of the diagnosis, then you have to put your team together to get through the diagnosis, right? Your surgeon, your radiology oncologist, your oncologist, supplementation, medication. What if you want to detox? What, you know, all those things. And then having someone help you navigate through the system becomes just amazingly difficult. So as they do that, that there's various stress responses in, within that. So you begin to help them find their base, their resiliency. You help them to, be, to find what's true for them. What do they want their life to look like? What do they want their spiritual life to look like? What emotional things are they enablers? Are they folks who keep rescuing? Um, do they feel like they're a victim? Uh, are they persecuting? So you've got the Cartman Triangle. So there's lots of tools you can begin to lay out there once you know essentially what you're building, which is comes from the blueprint. Um, in some cases, I've seen where folks have high neuroplasticity in their cognitive portion of their genomic panel. Translation, mind-body approach is super important for them. And then the one gal that had the BRCA gene, her neurocognitive change was way off the, the, the chart. So her ability to, to have a strong influence into her genes, because there's, there's, we know on a quantum level, this is just, you know, science, that we can influence our genes by communication. And so um, developing that for a patient, I say start talking to your genes. Have a cell call. <laughs> Talk to your cells. That's the type of cell call you want. Hello there, detoxification. Hello there, liver. How are you? And I know that just sounds about as silly and as hokey pokey as it comes, but what I see is people begin to get connected back into their body. You know, there's a whole branch of psychology, the embodiment. And, you know, mind-body, it's not, it doesn't mean your mind out, is out there and your body's over there. It means it's connected. It means it's that embodiment. It means you're hearing what your body's saying and you're in and literally connected within the cells. Trauma drives us out of the body immediately. Trauma drives us completely to be separate. That's that disassociation that occurs. And there's that cutoff, you're right, between the head and the body. And actually we know there's more receptors in the heart that go upward to the head and start in the head and go to the heart. And so the, so you've got all of that. And then you've got this whole gut thing. And we know about that, the leaky gut, 70 to 80% of our immune systems there. We understand all that. That's, you know, that's basic pedestrian stuff that we should know. But what about that gut feeling? Are we driving right through that gut feeling when, you know, somebody says, well, I need you to have this project done yesterday with Mr. Cranky Pants or Miss Cranky Pants over there. 
and you just go, okay, once again, I have to fix this. You don't. You don't have to fix this. You can say, you know, I can't, or I'm at my limit, and I have to change things. Um, and so it's making those decisions and getting back in touch with those things that are literally our core values that drive the influence upon our response to our disease, to our distress, which is really an excessive response to stress, and bringing us back and unwinding what happens to us. And that's, that's a detoxification. That's a change. That's an energetic detoxification. And I, yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I can see how that definitely affects your cell to cell communication. Mm -hmm. And I love that what you said, we can influence our genes by communication, cell to cell communication. Yeah. So, and, and definitely see that, you know, one of the discussions I had with Alessia Fasano way back, um, a few years back when his, um, article had come out in Scientific American on Zonulin, and we're having a glass of wine, and he's eating bread, I'm gluten-free, right? And yeah. we're talking, and, and he said, you know, we were talking about cortisol and stress, and I was like, you know, isn't cortisol a big key to why certain people will have this increase in Zonulin or leaky gut, et cetera? He goes, cortisol is the key that unlocks the gate. You know, and he says, that is the key that unlocked the gate. It shifts this cascade. And now the more we know about the epigenetics and these SNPs, these pathways, is what's turning it on and what's turning it off. Right. The beauty that I'm seeing is that we can use, um, you know, we, we talked about, we talk about adaptogenic, or, you know, adrenal adaptogens. We now know that there are genetic adaptogens, right, that are going to help promote and help turn off, like turmeric. I believe maca is one, you know, I'm big on my... Yes maca greens so um that these are these are where we can influence through our nature our functional approach but nothing beats the spiritual approach you're talking about getting in touch with your core values bringing your body your mind back into your body right. as one and and i definitely have firsthand experience with that with my ptsd and and that my trauma that my family and I went through and, and just recognizing too, that I was way out here for the most part, ignoring what um, my body was telling me for, yeah. for quite a long time. Yeah, that's so true. And I think that's a really good point with the, as we look at genomic panels too, and we look at any of the results we get back from our functional testing that overlays the genomics. So when I get the blueprint, I'm already, getting additional tests, whether it's, um, you know, intracellular levels of selenium or red blood cells of magnesium or whatever I'm getting, right? And so then, you know, I've got this lovely, and I found I have a SNP for this, for OCD. So now I just say, don't worry, I have a SNP. I'm just functioning within my SNP. It's all <laughs> I'll have to look to see if I have that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have it. <laughs> I believe it was highlighted. <laughs> so hysterical. There it was, functioning within my genome, right, as I say. And, and I just started to get so intrigued by the pathways and the minutia, just like I did in college and graduate school with biochemistry. And that's when I realized I could perseverate over the type of B I was giving or the exact micro amount of the type of selenium at the same time of day and within the subfraction. And I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Step back. What influences more than the intracellular connectivity, that spirituality and the communication? And I saw that the folks who had difficulty with the flags they missed, the difficulties navigating the potholes, wanted to stay focused on the minutiae, wanted to stay focused on the concrete data. Um, and I'm hoping that as I get more proficient and, and I have more of the art part of really helping patients go through this, that I can say, yeah, here's the, the con concrete details, but here's really the overall message of your genome. This is what your blueprint saying to you and what it wants to build within your house of yourself and how it wants to build you and, 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 and support you. And some folks I even say, well, your, your blueprint says a ranch and you're over here trying to build a tutor. 
I said, taint working. <laughs> he said, there's, there, there's no second story and there's no circle castle type thing happening over here. It's just a ranch. But over here, you've got this beautiful scape and view and things that you can do. And that's a part of it. But we can't build this because that's not what your genes are saying. And I found that true, too, when people say, well, what am I supposed to eat? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm going to be paleo. Well, I'm going to be keto. Well, I'm going to be um, Atkins. I'm like, you know, okay, let's try all these things. People get some success, goes down the tubes, they're frustrated, they come in, you know, and they actually have um, like an omnirexia where they're just, they don't know what to eat and they're afraid <laughs> I like that. Omnirexia. Yeah. And so I eat everything. Exactly. And so I said, well, um, and then they want to negotiate. That's my favorite. Well, can I have just a little of that? Or what if I have just this? And I'm like, I can't negotiate this. I don't know what you're supposed to do. Let's see what your blueprint says. And so some folks say, you know, they're not supposed to have any meat and it comes back and their genome says must eat wide variety of lean meats, fish, green leafy vegetables. And they're like, well, I used to do that, but it didn't seem in fashion. And now, you know, the other is in fashion. So, or I want to be vegetarian just because I want to be. Or some people that are vegan really it doesn't, their genome does not support that. And so it becomes a really, really deep question and a very personal question. And that's where just some of the beauty and the, the magic of the doctor-patient relationship, the provider-client relationship can take shape. And you're just taking some time and being patient and just walking through those steps to say, well, this is the, the concrete part. How does it feel? What do we, how do you want to go forward? What does that really mean? And I've had some people actually reintroduce meat. Some, and, and some people, I love this one too, who a patient had um, breast cancer, also had lupus, family history of lupus. And she had some lupus things in course, supposed to be gluten-free and supposed to be no dairy. It's not what her genome said at all. So I think that as we look at that SNP coming down and when we understand with the DNA, there can be a reflection um, generationally on that DNA of SNPs. And so I said to this person, I said, well, what if you just believed you were going to get that? What if we change your belief? Or not change, what if we shift your belief? You know, let's not challenge it, but let's just shift it. Let's open up to another possibility that, Maybe you don't need to have that. She's like, I never thought of that. I said, okay. And then on we went. Two months later, she circles back around with me. She says, you know, another doctor I saw mentioned I should stop taking my medicine for lupus, and I think I'm ready to do that. So I think we should try it. And so, and she's been very stable for years, but sometimes what underlines some of those choices for therapies or medications might be a fear if I don't do that, something's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so we've got the genome that said, yeah, you've got some tendencies, but if you shore up all these other things, the tendency goes away. And so the beauty of that is just amazing. Yeah. And I think that's key to look at, you know, like, okay, you've got this tendency or this genetic um, profile for lupus, but what we can do to prevent that, right? Mm -hmm. So what we can do, the same with Alzheimer's, we worry about the APOE gene, and we look at those issues and can recognize, well, we've got so much to empower us to avoid that. And understanding what we can do versus what we can't or we're at risk of that shift, I think is really, is really a key practice. I would love um, to talk, like you were talking about what genetics, like as far as knowing what diet is best for you. I'd love to talk about a workup, like what you do for your genetic workup for clients like that. I remember we used to, we used to use Pathway Genomics before we had the full 23andMe. And that was kind of cool to be able to look at that. But bottom line, it's, you know, it's variety. I would say it's variety. It's what your body resonates with. Get in touch. So you're able to discern what works for you and what doesn't work for you. It's a right. practice and a process, but yeah. it's kind of nice to like think about, okay, for our listeners, what genetic testing do you recommend they get the 23andMe? And then what do they do with that data? 
always following up with a, a physician who has the art of medicine in hand, right? And that's what you do. You've incorporated the spiritual component, like biology of belief, right? right. You've been, um, incorporated that plus the really big concept of emotionally healthy spirituality right. you tied into your therapeutic approach. And that is exceptional. Really, I want to commend you because I know how difficult that is Thank you. in one-on-one -on -one and how rare it is to find a physician like you. Yeah, thanks. Okay. thanks. So, yeah, so it would be a great example of someone who might live in a certain region of the country. Let's pick on the Midwest because that's where I'm from. Sure. We tend to eat meat, potatoes, white bread, cheese, stuff like that you know, minimal or maybe certain vegetables. And what we find is that there's their genomic profile, their genetic markers, their, um, you know, the symptoms they're having is they're overweight, they have low exercise tolerance, they have difficulty losing weight, they might be pre-diabetic or have metabolic syndrome with elevated blood pressure, triglycerides, a little bit higher uh, hemoglobin A1C, and they're perimenopausal. Now, you know, if you throw a rock out the window, you're going to hit one of those patients, right? They're just everywhere. And what we find is when we take the genomic overlay and we look at that and we look at what SNPs are present, some people need more amounts of um, fish. And they go, well, I kind of don't like it. Well, in the nutrigenomics part of the test I use, I use Genoma International. I make no money from them. Uh, so I can say that's the test I use because that gives me the best data available. And uh, so I use their nutrigenomics part of that, and it showed in the macro portion that the individual actually thought when they ate uh, greens and stuff that it tasted more bitter than the average person. And so there's ways to prepare those greens to take that bitterness away. Um, and then there's another one that said they don't really like fish. Well, then their macro profile, it showed when they um, ate fish, it actually smelled and tasted more fishy. So then there's ways you can prepare that. For example, uh, with tuna and, or with some of the larger fish, you know, that you eat in certain portions, you can add a nutmeg and um, lemon and certain herbs, and that just changes and enhances the flavor so it drops that fishiness out. So they're going to get the benefit of the food, learn how to cook it properly because we, you know, that can be taught. Um, and so it's not fish sticks out of a box or a can of tuna that tastes horrible. Um, it's a way to prepare that same food and begin to adjust your palate. Um, and so that's something that's really important. I agree. Sometimes it's just introducing color and it's introducing the fact that these foods are more supportive to their system. And so I literally take a dietary history. There's no, there's no um, judgment in it. Doesn't matter. We just got to start somewhere. And then I say, okay, now based upon that, here's your blueprint, uh, and here's what would be a good idea. In mine, you know, you would think no grains. No, it said actually I need high grains, and I need them to be more of the ancient grains, and I need to have brown rice versus white rice. And, you know, but if you look at things that are on the market, we know like um, the plant paradox and things like that, the brown rice would be off the, off the scale for you. Don't, don't even consider that. Well, that's the one I'm supposed to do with lots of green leafy vegetables, lemon juice, olive oils. For me, it's very important for me to do the middle chain poly and, and polyunsaturated fatty acids and the middle chain fatty acids. The saturated fats I get into more trouble with how my genomic panel handles that. So middle chain like coconut oil. Yeah. Coconut's my friend. Mm -hmm. Coconut is what? Anti-inflammatory, we know. It's antifungal. Um, it is good for your brain. It's good for your skin. It's good for the planet. I'm like, I'm all over that. And so transition that and use that for more of your oils. Um and get, you know, step away from more of the heavier plants or the beefs and the, you know, the, the, the porks and things like that. So it's very interesting. And you just kind of begin to shift things. And I say that shift in time takes patients three to six months, a lot of reinforcement, a lot of education. 
it's like anything you start, you find dead ends and cul-de-sacs and figure it out, right? And come back. Um, but the biggest thing to make it fun and learning and an adventure, um, and I'm actually hooking up with a friend of mine who's a um, foodie and she's a food writer. And so she's taken the culinary genomics course and I'm steeped deep in the science course and medical course right now. And we're going to actually put things together because we want this to be fun for folks. Yeah. We want the food choices to resonate with them. We want it to support them and to be healing versus like, oh, I got to have kale again. You know, it's like now once I see these things and see how these foods come in to support my system, I can't get enough of them. Like, where's the kale? Are we out? You need to go buy more. And, or, you know, where is the spinach? What's that looking like? Um, and we find, I found more influences from the thyroid, not from the cruciferous sides, but from the heavy metal sides, from the detoxification side, from the liver sides, and from vitamin D sides, where thyroid had different changes in how it was metabolized, rather than saying, oh, you're eating too much broccoli. Yeah, let's, let's emphasize that because that is such a big thing. People on thyroid medicines and people with thyroid are fearing the cruciferous and you're like, that blows my mind. We know inherently when we think about it, that does not make sense, right? right. So right. let's talk about these bigger influencers on the thyroid because that is an epidemic today. It so is. our listeners, probably several of you out there listening, have hypothyroid, have had Hashimoto's. So they're here the genomics, the genomic panel can really, really play a big role in understanding what are the big actors causing this thyroid dysfunction. So exactly. I'd love to address that because it's such a big issue, especially in the perimenopause and menopause when we've got our estrogen detoxification issues going along right along the same side with our thyroid detoxification issues. And right. so, um, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, that's Thank a perfect you. example because I think the best success for that has been um, we stepped back and looked, we found viruses influencing thyroid, which I did not give thought to until about 18 months ago. And what I saw was so many people, and, and I thought maybe this is just a Colorado thing, but everybody came to me and nothing was working. And I'm like, seriously, you know, we got to figure this out. And so as I went back, I redid the history in all the patients. Tell me about your childhood. Tell me about early diseases. Tell me about infections you had. And I began to see a pattern that people had mono. And I'm like, hmm, mono's Epstein-Barr. Epstein-Barr is herpes six, or herpes four, rather. Hmm, I wonder if we were to readdress or look at this. And so, and, and those folks also got their genomic test done. And there wasn't anything really in the smoking gun regarding the thyroid. And I'm like, hmm, not what I was expecting. Mm -hmm. so, so I went and looked at the viruses, and they all had a history uh, most of them knew about a history of mono that was relatively significant, but their lab test showed they had a reactivation. So they had their titer showed they had a previous exposure, but their titer numbers were really high. And I said, okay, let's sit and think about are you know are you having some fatigue? Are you slow to recover after you go to your exercise class? What's your sleep quality? Are you having some night sweats? Things that we might have passed off. So I kind of resurfaced some of those Epstein-Barr types of symptoms. They were all having them, every single one of them. I'm like, okay, well, let's treat the virus. So we began treating the virus because I do integrative care. We use IV therapy, ozone. I mean, that's going to be, you know, a whole nother conversation. Mm -hmm. And homeopathics. And, you know, so we began treating and supporting the body and uh, as I've been treating in the body and the, getting the viral loads down, their, their thyroids have been responding. And two people have been able to take off thyroid medicine. A couple people were just hanging around, but if we try thyroid medicine on them, they overreact, they get palpitations, they don't feel well, mm. they sweat, they, get, they feel like they're coming out of their skin. And then um, if I give them synthetic, it's worse. If I give them porcine or the you know armor, it's even way worse. If I use T3, that sort of works. And so, so we're kind of sitting here. So what I'm doing is just saying, okay, let's just 
let's get into good, good, good nutrition. We know what some inflammatory markers white would be, of course, anything white. Let's eat according to what your blueprint says you need. Okay, you can actually have grains. You're one who can. You're one who can't. And it's the same symptoms. Both have elevated viruses, but their genome is different. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm like, okay, so for you, we get to do this. And for you, we get to do that. And we're like, and I'm going, oh, and they're both getting better. I would say the art of medicine, two patients come in with exactly the same complaints, leave with two completely different right. recommendations. Exactly that. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, that, and so that's how we're doing it. So. so I think that's really fascinating because the thyroid virus connection, so besides Epstein-Barr virus, and that's someone, something people can check titers on right now, right? What would they test for? Epstein-Barr virus antibody? Yes, there's a titer. I'm using, you know, again, I don't get paid by any of these labs. I use lab corks. I can get different titer levels. Yeah. And it's an Epstein-Barr panel. And then the conclusion of the panel will be there was a previous infection. Okay, but then the titer level might go up to 30, but your level is over 600. Yeah. So that, that demonstrates a reactivation. Mm-hmm. You know, and the other thing is having these, if they're moms, especially check with their kiddos. Some of these protracted sore throats have been come out positive for mono. And what we learn in medical school is what? Mono, you have to be a teenager to young adult. No, we're identifying mono in eight-year-olds. Wow. And there's actually some evidence that's coming in past genetically and genomically. So, um, so the, the moms who might have had really bad mono, then their kiddos are picking up some of that too. Mm. Um, so I think that that's just super fascinating. I found an eight-year-old with it. I never would have believed it. That is fascinating because you do think of it as a young adult or young or teen. You know, yeah. when you talked about virus, thyroid and virus connection and really just the epidemic that we're having right now with thyroid, you had mentioned before, you know, heavy metals, yeast. I mean, those are big issues. Estrogen, you know, birth control pills, all those things affect our thyroid function. Yes. But when you measured viruses, I was thinking, what about like the flu shots and you know, the vaccines that we're doing, is that, a, you know, I mean, is that a component? I was just, I'm just curious about that. I don't know. I, I think that's a very good question. I think we don't know because, you know, the vaccine issue is such a hot button. And mm-hmm. as soon as you say something, you're labeled one way or the other. Yeah, better be careful. Yeah. And so I sit in the middle of that. I think there's things we know and things we don't know. The things we know is that um, we've saved a lot of folks by using vaccines. The things we don't know is what happens when we put all the vaccines together and administrate them at once. I mean, we didn't test them that way. So we don't know. And we have to be honest with ourselves. Um, The things we do know is that we make the viruses. Some of them are synthetic. Some of them, they used to be live. A lot of them are now dead or, you know, not attenuated. Um, And some of them were made through animals like chickens, avian. And avians can have um, stealth viruses. Well, the, evi- um, the definition is stealth, right? We don't, we don't see them. So those are things we don't know. Um, and I think we just have to be honest with what we know and don't know and say possibly. But what we, and again, if we go back to that genome of the individual or and they maybe that person can't get rid of viruses real well. Maybe they have a problem detoxifying heavy metals. Okay. And in comes a stealth virus that we weren't aware of. It creates a perfect storm. And so backing that out becomes a challenge. First, understanding that it may even exist is a challenge. Then figuring out how to back it out. So... I think that that's completely fascinating. I don't have the answers in that, but my curiosity is very high. Yeah, yeah, my curiosity is high there too. And that's always good to listen to that intuitive aspects of ourselves, right? And just always weighing the benefits versus the risk, what we know versus what we don't know. Yeah. And how we feel about that. Like you said, the biology of belief, right? Right. So a Genoma International, Genoma National or Genoma International? International, Genoma International, International. they're out of um, 
their their lab is in New Mexico. I can forward that information. I don't have any uh, financial um, relationship with them other than I use them for testing. And do they do the do you do they take the twenty three andme data or do they do their own? They do their own, and then they give you a patient friendly printout, hopefully. Yes, 137 plus pages. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, and so what I found, because I have patients, you know, there's some price to it. You know, the range is anywhere from, you know, 300 up to 2,500, depending how in-depth of analysis you want. I try and recommend the high-end analysis because I spend a lot of time. I work with their medical director, Dr. Roberta Klein, uh, and and going through the data meticulously. Mm -hmm. And so you're paying for the data analysis plus, you know, two physicians who've been in practice 25 years plus each looking at everything. Mm -hmm. And so their database, how they analyze it is pretty amazing because it comes out in cardiovascular panel, um, bone health panel, cognitive emotional panel, um, detoxification, um, nutrigenomics and um, nutritional elements um, and exercise. So it even goes down to the type of exercise an individual has. And they're overlaying a number of different genes. And so you're getting the texture of the genes and then the texture of the SNPs within those genes or potential functional changes. I have not seen any other data out there. I know people take some of the 23andMe and put it into other websites like LiveWello and stuff like that. And I've tried to cross-reference them. And I, I see things, and I even had one patient say, I don't have any smoking guns. I said, okay, I'll look. Oh, I saw four smoking guns in, in like five minutes that if I would have had them just analyzed a different way, I would have known exactly what to do. Yeah. And a patient sitting in front of me, and she's a chronic Ill, chronically ill patient. Yeah. How can, you know, so I... You know, you can't really say you have no smoking guns and you're chronically ill. Yeah, um, there's something there. Yeah. So I, I found this to be the most advanced test on the market, honestly, and it's given me the best, uh, it, I've been able to do my best clinical work with it. That's all I know. Yeah, and, and that's huge because otherwise we're fishing, right? Right. What do you do with that information um, unless you really get it filtered out? And again, we're continuing to advance this area of science exponentially. Yeah. It's beautiful. And there are very, again, very few physicians that are using it clinically. And to see you incorporate this with your holistic approach is really a gem. And I want to thank you so much for being on the show today with us and encourage our listeners to share this podcast. Also comment below and part of your discovery, just kind of thinking what, what's deeper inside, what can be influencing us. And then always going back to becoming present, being our best self in a peaceful internal milieu, despite what craziness exists in our world, and that you emphasize this and tie it into the genome, Dr. Yeah. Lauder, is, is powerful, really, really powerful. Thank, Thank you. Yeah. Tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you today. Sure. So uh, drmarylauder.com, D-R-M-A-R-Y-L-O-U-D-E-R.com is my website. My office is 303-722-9000. And we're located in Lafayette, Colorado. So if you just Google Dr. Mary Louder, Lafayette, Colorado, I'll come up. So that should be great. Happy to uh, field questions. I can do uh, long-term consultations or distance consultations and things like that. And uh, just happy to help anybody who's interested. So yeah. Well, thank you again for sharing your time today. And thank you for our listeners. We look forward to you sharing our iTunes podcast as well as rating it. And we're also see this video on YouTube as well as my blog at DrAnnaCabeca.com. I want to thank you all for being here today. And again, thank you, Dr. Lauder. You're welcome. Have a great day, everybody. Bye.